Welcome to Public Health Out Loud, Public Health for the Public. Hi, I'm Dr. Jim McDonald, Interim Director of the Rhode Island Department of Health. I'm Dr. Phil Chan. Welcome, everyone. Dr. Chan, again, just a delight to be hanging out with you today. And today, very excited about today's episode for a ton of reasons. We have Dr. Natasha Ryback uh, from the Rise Tuberculosis Clinic in Rhode Island here, which I think is just fun. We're going to get into the RISE Clinic, it's a TB clinic in Rhode Island here. Dr. Ryback, welcome to Public Health Out Loud. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, we're thrilled to have you today. Not the least of which I is, I, I have to know what RISE stands for. And I, I was talking to you a little bit before we started recording, like, I'm not the biggest fan of acronyms. I tend to use words because I like words. But what is the story behind the name of the RISE Clinic? Because RISE has nothing to do with tuberculosis. So like many things in Rhode Island, it is named after what it used to be. So it actually stands for the Rhode Island School for Electricians. I love that. <laughs> I just, I love that it has nothing to do with tuberculosis. It just, and by the way, there's no reason to believe that electricians get tuberculosis more commonly, but please keep going. <laughs> and because of that, the building that housed the Rhode Island School for Electricians was taken over um, by Miriam and then used for office buildings and the tuberculosis clinic. So then it was always referred to as the RISE building for what it had previously been. And since that time, we've been the RISE TV clinic. And occasionally from time to time, people ask us what it means. And that's when we get to discuss it. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Ryback. And uh, I also did not know that. No reason that anyone should know that. No, but, uh, no reason anyone should know that. That's awesome. <laughs> Dr. Ryback, thank you so much for joining us. You've been a great ID colleague over a number of years here. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell the, the audience here uh, who you are and you know what you do. I am an infectious disease physician. So I, I was trained in medicine and pediatrics, or we call it med-ped, so care for adult and children. And then I specialized in infectious disease for adults and children. And then I became uh, the director of the RISE TB clinic about six years ago. And um, so we are caring for patients in the TB clinic for um, who have latent and active disease. Yeah, Dr. Ryback, I think we should first start with what is tuberculosis? Because I, I mean, I think people know the word TB and tuberculosis, but like, my goodness, it's not common language. It's not even a common disease anymore. So what is tuberculosis? Yeah, so you're absolutely right that um, depending on where you are in the world is uh, how people reflect on how common tuberculosis is. So here in the U.S., one of the most common questions I get when I say that someone has tuberculosis is people say, oh, we still have that? I thought that was an old disease. But actually, uh, there's about 10 million people a year who develop active disease with tuberculosis. It is a bacteria that causes primarily respiratory disease, but can affect any part of your body. And it's a very unique disease in that you get it by breathing in the bacteria from someone around you who's coughing, singing, or just breathing, and it's airborne. So you breathe it in. And then only a small percentage of people who breathe it in actually become sick. So it has a, a latent form where you can kind of think of it as sleeping or quiet inside your body, but not making you ill. And then um, an active form where people um, become ill and sick. And when it's in the, in the lungs, the pulmonary form, that's when it's infectious to others. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Ryback. And I think similar to you, I've traveled around the world. And I really think that our, our infection control, our control programs for TB are really one of the public health triumphs of our country. And I think that the attitude of, oh, TB, is that still a thing? I mean, yes, TB is a thing. In fact, it's a major thing for mm -hmm. most of the world. Uh, but the fact that you know people don't worry about it here is, is really a triumph 
Uh, and one thing, you know, we have an entire TB program here at the Department of Health. And so the fact that most people aren't concerned is, you know, is a win-win. But talk to us first about TB in other parts of the world. I mean, how bad is it out there, say, in developing countries uh, mm -hmm. outside of the U.S.? Yeah. So when those 10 million people per year have active disease, um, about 1.5 million of those die every year. And that's uh, because a number of things, a lot of them don't get treatment. Um, they don't even actually get properly diagnosed with tuberculosis. It does take resources to identify people and treat them. And until COVID came around, tuberculosis was the number one infectious disease killer in the world. So it's a big problem. There's a lot of challenges going forward with multi-drug resistant tuberculosis and harder to treat forms of tuberculosis. Yeah. And I think that's one of the key things about tuberculosis. So I've been a doctor for 32 years. I have never treated a patient on my own for tuberculosis. I mean, I remember as a medical student being part of a team that treated a patient for tuberculosis. Now I've treated people with positive PPD tests, you know, the, uh -huh. the purified protein derivative. I've done that, but I've never treated a patient for tuberculosis because it's a, the treatment's complicated. You've got to be up to, it's specialized treatment, which I think really underscores Dr. Chan's point earlier. This disease has become so rare in the United States that not many people do the treatment often. And it's kind of like, like one of the rules of thumb I have as a doctor is if I don't treat a disease often, I tend not to treat it well. If I don't treat it well, I don't treat it at all. So I refer people out for things I don't treat well. I even tell my patients this. I said like, I don't treat this disease often. So I'm not going to be very good at this. So I'm sending you to someone who's really good at this. And my patients always seem to like that. But before we get into treatment of tuberculosis, why don't we talk about the symptoms of tuberculosis? Because that's a thing. Like, mm -hmm. what are the symptoms of tuberculosis? And by the way, how do you test for it? And when do you test for it? Any thoughts on that, Dr. Ryback? Yeah, so, so there's a lot there. So first, the symptoms of tuberculosis. Um, when we say that, we're going to be referring to active disease, which means that um, not when you're just infected, but when you actually have disease and feel sick. So most of the time, people have pulmonary symptoms, and those can be actually very subtle. So we're talking about cough that people may have for more than a few weeks, usually going into a few months. Also, sometimes people will feel fatigued. Occasionally they'll have fevers, but fever is actually not really a, a very common sign. That's very late stage. So most of the time it's cough, fatigue, weight loss, sometimes night sweats, even hemoptysis, which is coughing up blood doesn't really happen until your late stage. So the kind of things you want to notice is somebody who has a pneumonia, a cough and fatigue or weight loss. It just doesn't seem to be getting better with normal pneumonia treatment. Yeah. Thank you for that, Dr. Ryback. And you mentioned how serious of the disease and common it is pretty much throughout the rest of the world. To the average person in Rhode Island, how concerned should they be? How big of a problem is TB, say, in, in Rhode Island? So Rhode Island is not a, not a huge problem in, in, you know, here that we need to worry about that we're going to get exposed to tuberculosis, like going to work and living our lives. But it is important to keep in mind that there are certain groups of people who are at higher risk. And those are people who spent time um, either born, lived there, or then moved here, or been traveling back and forth to areas that are endemic for TB, meaning that there's TB. And that's actually most parts of the world outside of uh, the U.S., Canada, and Europe. So most of those other parts of the world have enough tuberculosis that people could be exposed and then develop disease. So, so Dr. Ryback, why don't we chat a little bit more about cultural barriers to deliver care? Like at the RISE Clinic, you know, I got to get back to the name, Rhode Island School of Electricians, Miriam Hospital Tuberculosis Clinic. You see people who are immigrants, people who are refugees, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, which is great, by the way, this is outstanding, right? Public health, there it is. And it's like one of the things I love about this 
Rise Clinic in Rhode Island is. It really is boots on ground public health direct patient care, like public health used to be. You know, mm-hmm. public health, you know, health departments across the country used to have direct patient care clinics. Most of them don't anymore. You know, but how do you overcome language or cultural barriers as you're delivering care in these settings? Yeah, so uh, we do take care of a lot of uh, refugees and people who've moved here as immigrants from other countries or people who are traveling. So there's a lot of different ways that we support those patients. One is that we have interpreters for our sessions. So we have a Spanish in-person interpreter that's there for the majority of all of our sessions. So we're able to communicate. We also have, we invite and always have a lot of other interpreters that are um, available or also on, we have these iPad interpreters and phone interpreters that we make sure that we have access. We also have close relationship um, with uh, Dorcas International, who have a lot of resettlement for refugees. So we have a lot of good relationships with the places that are resettling uh, people here. And then we also provide transportation for people when they need it. So we have patients who can't get to the clinic or can't go home from the clinic. And so we're able to, um, with some of the resources offered through Lifespan, able to get them rides home. The other thing I want to point out is that uh, we're supported by the Department of Health. So this is a clinic that is within Lifespan, but it's supported by the Rhode Island Department of Health, which is really important because we're able to provide testing and treatment for not only people suspected of active disease, for people who have latent disease so that we can prevent them from getting sick. So with those resources, we work with the Department of Health um, outreach staff. They can go to the home and give directly observed therapy for people who have active disease and close family contacts who we want to prevent from getting um, active disease. So they will help with preventative therapy for children and close contacts, which is really wonderful because that gives us a lot of resources um, for us to support those vulnerable people. Thank you, Dr. Ryback. Let me ask you this. For a person, you know, we just talked about too about how common TB was in other parts of the world. One question we often hear is if someone's traveling, uh, do travelers need to be concerned about TB? What travelers to to where any country, and what should they? What precautions should they take? What advice would you give? Yeah, so I think that it depends a lot on where you're traveling to and and how long you're traveling there. With usually short trips where you're a tourist or things like that, you, you know, um, you probably have a very little risk of developing TB. Uh, I mean, a, a being exposed to TB infection. Um, for people who are doing things like working in healthcare, um, which we do see a lot. We see medical students who, you know, every year when they go on trips will come back and have acquired TB infection. So I think it really depends on what you're doing. But if you're going to be traveling to an area where you're providing health care or working closely with people, you should really think about bringing a mask. Now it's a lot more common because of COVID to think of wearing an N95 mask. But now those N95 masks are much more available. So I would I would recommend people to wear those if they're going to be in a healthcare setting. A lot of countries don't have the resources to, to hand out those N95 masks. So they're not going to be giving them to you. So Dr. Ryback, I want to circle back to something we talked about earlier in this episode, which is treatment for tuberculosis. And I I Uh actually disclose that I don't treat people with tuberculosis. It's Uh too complicated. How do you treat people with tuberculosis? Because I'm I'm saying it's too complicated, but like, here's what I remember about tuberculosis. There's generally a lot of drugs involved and you got to do it in a very specific period of time. And you got to make sure the patient takes the medicine. Like that's one of those things where there's a really public health interest in making sure that the patient actually takes the medicine. Like we don't really at the health department, if you don't take your penicillin for strep throat, we don't show up at your door and tell you, you need to take your penicillin for strep throat. Mm-hmm. But for tuberculosis, we have a different approach there. You want to talk a little bit about how we treat it and why we do it that way? 
First, I think we'll just take active disease, which are people who are sick. So people who are sick with tuberculosis disease, that means they have it in their lungs or could have it in another part of their body. They usually need to have a combination of medications. Usually we start with four different medications that they take once a day. And then they take those for a couple of months until they're getting better and they're able to clear the bacteria that we can find from their lungs. That's the intensive therapy. And then we transition to what's called continuation therapy, where we usually take off uh, about two of the drugs and they remain on the other two drugs for the duration of their treatment, which is usually completed between six and nine months, depending on the severity of their disease. We monitor people really carefully during that time. Um, sometimes it's with blood draws. And then we also have directly observed therapy. Directly observed therapy means that you have someone who comes to the home and brings you the medicine and supports you through treatment. Now, that's really helpful in the beginning of treatment. Um, but we also have, for years here in the um, TB clinic, been using video directly observed therapy, which has actually worked really well, where people can actually just take videos of themselves um, taking the medicine, ask any questions they may want. And then we, um, our Department of Health colleagues, review that and document those doses. So it, that means that they can take um, any the medicines any time that they want to. Can be midnight, one o'clock. We see um, whenever it's good for the patient. And there is no vaccine for TB. Is that correct? No, it's not correct. There is vaccine for TB, um, but it is um, it is not what we consider a vaccine like for COVID or things like that, that really prevent people from dying of TB. So um, there is a BCG vaccine and the BCG vaccine is actually very commonly used in many parts of the world. And it prevents young children from developing active severe disease. So um, it's given at birth in many countries where TB is endemic. And the goal is to present uh, prevent children from developing disseminated disease or meningitis. But as you get older, the benefits of the vaccine wane, and then you are not protected. So that's why we still have so many people um, dying of disease. You know, it's interesting. I, I, I've been a doctor for 32 years, and I remember learning about the BCG, Bacille Calumet Guerin vaccine mm -hmm. in medical school. And I've never seen it, you know, I, I've had very few people actually had it because it's given in other countries, but not not in the United States at all, which is just interesting about that's a disease that just still doesn't have a great vaccine for it. Yep. It's been fun to chat about tuberculosis, but I think we should shift our conversation a little bit to something you and I've talked about before, which is a little bit about something else you're working called the Brown University Ukraine collaboration. We've had some other conversations about this before, but I'd love to have our listeners listen to you a little bit of that. What is the Brown University Ukraine collaboration and how'd you get involved? Well, I can't tell the story about how I got involved without mentioning Dr. Timothy Flanagan, who is uh, really impetus for getting me involved. So I, I have strong ties to Ukraine. I have some Ukrainian background, and I was an exchange student through Rotary International in 1993-94 and lived in Ukraine. So I had um, friends and colleagues um, there for a number of years. And then in my medical school years at Brown Medical School and then into my residency, Dr. Flanagan sent me over there to look for some colleagues and to start some collaborations. And then we started working on HIV. Um, and then very, not, not very long after, we realized that the real problem there was tuberculosis. So for a number of years, we've been developing partnerships. We have a partnership with Bohemolitz Medical University in Kyiv. We have multiple colleagues worked on research projects. And then we also started collaborating with Boston University TB researchers there. And uh, so we've just been kind of gathering people year by year who are interested in working with us in Ukraine. 
And Dr. Ryback, let me ask you this. Of course, the big uh, the big story on all the news ch- channels is the war in Ukraine. Personally, how has the war affected your work and anything that you've seen in Ukraine? It has affected all of us. It's affected all of our colleagues, mostly, of course, directly. So I have multiple colleagues in Ukraine. The majority of them are still there. Many of them are TB doctors in Ukraine taking care of patients. So so a lot of them are still taking care of patients. Um, A lot of them who are doing TB research, their work has actually been completely transitioned over to managing support for patients in the war, for victims of the war, for people who've been um, injured or displaced, helping them get food and resources and medicines back and forth over the border. So a lot of them have been spending their time doing that. There's also been um, TB hospitals that have been bombed and destroyed, and it's, it's been a huge you know, disruption of care. Obviously, we know about the migration of people, not just out of Ukraine, but around in Ukraine as well. So that's a huge disruption for tuberculosis. And tuberculosis in Ukraine will take a huge setback for this. I think you underscored just how tragic you know, war is. I mean, the war in Ukraine is heartbreaking, and I personally struggle with it because it just seems so unwarranted, so unnecessary, and so evil. You know, I look at the problems in my own little life, which are very small problems, but my heart is heavily burdened by what goes on in Ukraine every day. I read about this every day in the news, and it just, it's heavily burdened about this because it's just such a, a reckless tragedy. I don't know how else to describe it. It's just a reckless tragedy. Uh-huh. And one of the things I think about is there's so many bad things that will happen to us in our life that we can't control necessarily. Cancer sometimes can't be prevented. You know, accidents sometimes can't be prevented, but this is something that was so easily prevented. Um, and the fact that it's lasted so long is so tragic. You know, I want to just go back a little bit to tuberculosis in Ukraine. You said it's going to take a step back. Why do you think it's going to take a step back? Because I think that's something we should really understand. Like, why do we think tuberculosis could take a big step back in Ukraine? Because this is going to be a problem for perhaps not just Ukraine. It might even be a problem for the whole planet. And I do think it will be a problem for the whole planet. And the reason I think that is because in addition to having there's levels of tuberculosis in Ukraine that are higher than um, here. Um, it's about about 80 per 100,000, which is many times higher than it is in the U.S. But the most important thing um, to notice in Ukraine is that there are high rates of drug-resistant tuberculosis. So drug-resistant tuberculosis is much harder to treat than our sensitive tuberculosis. And this really comes down from a post-Soviet legacy on how TB was managed. And then during the breakup of the Soviet Union, intermittent drug supply, levels of incarceration that really led to having very high rates of drug-resistant tuberculosis in the whole former Soviet Union, not just Ukraine, but the whole former Soviet Union. And Ukraine had taken great strides to address this. Um, They were uh, participating in some of the best clinical trials to look for advanced treatments for um, multidrug-resistant TB, finding ways to transition from care out of the hospital and into ambulatory in order to address this and not allow for transmission in the hospital. So all of that is going, all that research and all that work um, to address multidrug-resistant TB is unfortunately come to a halt. And now all of the disruption with war means that people who are being treated are actually not on treatment and are also, you know, in close quarters with people, you know, under, you know, under cities and subways or crammed into buses or traveling around and there's going to be more transmission. And then the thing with multidrug resistant tuberculosis is that when you have latent TB or the sleeping quiet form of tuberculosis, you don't, we don't have such effective ways to prevent people from developing disease as we do with sensitive TB. So those people a certain proportion of them will develop active disease and it will become um, multi-drug resistant tuberculosis active. 
Thank you, Dr. Ryback. And I think as our time is winding down here, let me ask you this. What is the future of TB? Is there any hope of eliminating TB ever? Is there any hope of an of a effective vaccine that really, you know, really prevents TB in adults? What are your thoughts on the future of TB? Yeah, thank you for that. So I am hopeful that we will make more strides. Even the the new advancements that we've seen with COVID vaccines gives, I think, new hope onto vaccines for other diseases, including tuberculosis, because we probably have the technology to do it, just we need to put enough resources into it. Um, but over the last decade or so, we've had great strides in tuberculosis with new diagnostics, changes in regimen, new drugs. And so I'm pretty hopeful that we can address this, but it really does take commitment and it takes commitment from countries here in the U.S. and other places where we don't see as much TB, so people don't care about putting as much money into it. But it is a major problem in the rest of the world, and we we need to address it. It's been a great conversation, Dr. Ryback. It's funny how our time flew by. It just does fly by quickly. But it's been great talking about not just tuberculosis, but I will now know forever that the RISE Clinic is named after the former Rhode Island School for Electricians. <laughs> and I, I just love the homage to electricians, but it just, it's so quirky, but it's funny, like so much of our culture is based on quirky things from the past that have nothing to do with the present. Um, and that's great to me. And uh, the Merriam Hospital does a lot of great work with patients with tuberculosis. You do as well. Thank you for what you do for people with tuberculosis. And, you know, thank you so much for your, your work with the issues with Ukraine as well. There's so much going on. And you know, you, one of the things you illustrate to me as a physician, you embody some of the highest virtues of a physician, which is that you help your patients, but you also help the country and the world. In other words, you see the larger picture as a physician. Uh, it's a chance to serve. We are very much in a service profession. There's a lot we do. But as our episodes come to a close, we have a tradition where Dr. Chan gives us his final word. And I was looking forward to your final word, Dr. Chan. What's the final word today? Wonderful. Thank you, Dr. McDonald. And thank you, Dr. Rybeck, again, uh, both for appearing today and just for your work in general. I know you're uh, important to the state here, TB. Thank you for being a leader. Uh, super appreciated. And in closing, I do want to leave folks with a moment of Zen to consider throughout the rest of your day. And here it is by Confucius. Life is really simple, but we insist on making it complicated. Thank you all and be well. I want to thank Stephanie Menders, our executive producer, Carol Stone, our technical director. I'm Dr. Jim McDonald. Have a good and keep up the great.